Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Lord, we just come before you this morning just to sing your praises. Lord, join with us this morning, Lord, that you may be glorified in all that we do as we celebrate your presence by expressing our love to you in prayers and songs, Lord, and in hearing and responding to your word. Lord, I pray that you just put that joy in our heart this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be beginning our first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a word that means coming or visit. In the Christian season of Advent, we prepare for the coming of the Advent of Christ at Christmas. By lighting one candle each week of Advent, we help ourselves get ready for the birth of Christ. During Lent, we extinguish candles. In Advent, we light the candles as we look forward to his coming. They all have different meanings, each based upon the Bible. These meanings help us to understand and prepare our hearts how special the birth of Jesus is for us. The first candle, which is called the candle of hope. It symbolizes our faith in God and keeping his promises to humanity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of hope. It's not a wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that your promises are true and that you are faithful to execute them in your providence. For many, hope is all that they have to keep them going. Life is difficult, health is failing, money is tight, and relationships are tenuous. And without hope, we are left destitute. Yet you are faithful and your promises are sure. Your mercy is everlasting. And we find comfort in the old Christmas carols that reflect the yearning for your promises. When we hear, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, for he shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, they cry, thou rod of Jesse, freeing thine own from Satan's tyranny, and from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. We find comfort in the rejoicing of this fulfillment in the carol that says, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. Thou camest, O Lord, with the living word, and thou shalt set thy people free. But with mocking scorn and with crown of thorns, they bore thee to Calvary. As we sing these songs and pray, and we hear your word this morning. Fill us with the marvelous gift of hope. May we respond with the faithfulness that you've called us to. In the name of Christ, we pray this. God's people said, Amen. Amen. We have a special treat for you during this season. We're starting this morning a series of five messages called The Promises of Christmas. And each promise is going to be given by a different elder and deacon during this Christmas season. In a little bit, Randy is going to come. He's one of our elders. Uh, he's mainly has always been taught to the children, but this is the first time he's going to come and share with us the promise of a Savior. Well, it is good to gather here after Thanksgiving. 
which is really a noble and honorable tradition in this country. It really is uh, something to give thanks, and we know that in church, we're to give thanks for things large, things small. It can be a roof over your head, your health, your safety, your well-being, a job, all kinds of things. Uh, some are just simple. You can walk out the door. For some, it's time to celebrate their favorite NFL team winning on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, sorry, Cowboys fans. <laughs> but it is for different people. It's for different things. We're thankful for different things. But there is one event, one holiday, one tradition, really one person and one promise that we celebrate that really stands out on our landscape, and that's Christmas. And so for the next few Sundays, we are going to bring you some messages on the promises of Christmas. And these promises are so profound in so many ways. And standing above all the promises of Christmas is, of course, Jesus Christ. And more accurately, it's Jesus the Christ. It comes from the Greek word Christos. The Hebrew form is Messiah. Messiah is understood by the Jewish people as one who is sent to save or a savior. Today we zero in on Jesus as savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you today to celebrate your great and grand promises. Would you please grant us understanding and wisdom of your word? Enable us to receive the message that you have for us today, as you intend for us to receive it. And may I bring your word accurately and faithfully. May it be your word and not mine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The well, Savior, one who saves, this is obviously the central fact of God in the form of Son of God, Jesus, taking on human form. He came to seek and to save the lost, the Bible tells us. So rebellious people needed to be saved from their rebellion. The rebellion from what? Actually, the rebellion from perfection. Yes, God promises perfection. He promised perfection at the creation. He promises perfection at salvation. So originally, perfection was for people in this earthly stage of our lives. And we see this clearly in Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 7. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God created the man and the woman and gave them a perfect world. That was first. Secondly, God calls man to perfect obedience in that perfect world. A little later in Genesis chapter 2, we see God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So at a creation, he gave us a perfect world, Calls man to perfect obedience. Says, here it is, perfection. Just stay away from that and all is perfect. And we know how that went. It's kind of like you tell your kids, you can go in any room. Just don't go in that one. 
Don't even think about it. Stay away. Not a thought. And what's going to permeate that child's mind for the next five days or five minutes? That's all he's going to be able to think about, right? So their curiosity gets the best of them, and they go in. So God gives man the plan of perfect obedience in his perfect world, and that's not all. He gives man a perfect relationship. And the Lord God said, Genesis 2.18, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Jumping down to verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, so far things are wonderful. It's just perfect, complete harmony with God, bliss. There's no need for a Savior. There's no separation from God. There's no darkness. They're just communing with God until, as we all know, man falls. Genesis 3. Wouldn't it be nice if it just stopped at Genesis 2, by the way? Just stop right there. Don't go to Genesis 3. But unfortunately, we have Genesis 3, and that's where... God introduces Satan in the form of a serpent who then says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Planting a seed of doubt. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We know where this story is going, right? God confronts Adam. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God had given man the perfect world, gave him life, gave him a call to perfect obedience, gave him the perfect relationship, and he blew it. He had it all, and he blew it. He squandered it, which is a very familiar tale that we know in our lives, we see it all the time. How many times have you heard about somebody who has racked up just incredible wealth? Money that you and I probably will never ever even imagine seeing in our life, and then we hear some years later, they've made poor decisions and they've just squandered it. They've they've wasted it all. They wind up in just pitiful circumstances. And it's usually celebrities, because that's why we hear about them. It's been reported that 78% of all former NFL football players go bankrupt within two years of retirement. That's astounding. So man gives up perfection. God set up perfection for him and he gave it up. There's dire consequences for that. The consequence is death. Adam represented all of mankind and when he sinned, all were affected. We read in Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. If you ever need a reminder of just how rampant sin is in our lives and how damaging the effects are, just turn to the book of Romans. It's extremely humbling. We read in verse 310, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 323, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 2-1, you have no excuse, O man. You have no excuse. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And what death really means is separation from God. To be present with God like Adam and Eve were, that is perfection, being present 
with God in heaven for us will be perfection. And that is our hope. That's our hope. That's our confident expectation. The opposite of that is hopelessness, death, separation from God and his love forever, complete and utter darkness for eternity. We can't overstate what that is. Earlier this month when I was in Ecuador, we took a little time on our way back to the airport. We had a couple hours to spend, and we stopped in the capital city of Quito. They have some just spectacular cathedrals they're very proud of. And so we toured a, several of these, and they have great works of art in them. One of them actually set up an entire room. I mean, it's, it's just flat out an art gallery. And the big paintings, works from the 17th and 18th centuries, most of them, just beautiful works. And most of them depicted multiple scenes of the biblical story of heaven and hell. And as you stood in front of that, I was particularly struck by the depictions of hell. They were gruesome. It was just complete and utter torment, ongoing, active, bodies and faces contorted and mangled, and just the pictures of complete and utter suffering were really arresting, and I was not the only one taken aback by them. But that's the inescapable reality of sin. That's the penalty for sin, and that's God's justice for sin. We know that God is just. There is sin. He is just and right to punish us for sin. And so when he set up the perfect world, gave man the call for perfect obedience, and then gave him the perfect relationship, and then man sinned, God was just to destroy that. So God's justice is that sin destroyed the perfect world. God's justice is that sin destroyed the perfect obedience. And God's justice is that sin destroyed the perfect relationship. And until unless we understand this, we are lost and we are without hope. And worst of all, we're destined for death and separation from him forever. And that's not a fun message to bring. The closest we can get here is if you're a doctor and you have to tell somebody they have an incurable disease and it's terminal. But unlike the doctor's bad news, God has good news. In fact, God has the best news. His solution is the promise of a savior because we need someone or something to satisfy God's justice. And also God's love must be served because God loves us unconditionally. And that someone or something is indicated very early in the Bible. Uh, I think earlier than most may realize, you know how I said it's too bad the Bible keeps going after chapter 2? Well, if we go to chapter 3, it's not all bad news. So why don't you turn with me to Genesis 3. We'll be in verse 14. And that's where we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In verse 15, this is key. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, or seed in the original Hebrew, and her offspring, or seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All the way back in Genesis, this passage is understood as pointing to the defeat of the serpent by a future descendant of the woman. It's got a fancy title that I didn't know until Pastor Rob told me. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. The first announcement of the gospel, right there in, early in the book of Genesis. 
So here is the first hint that salvation will come through a virgin-born child. For God is speaking of the woman's seed, which she does not have. The woman has an egg that is fertilized by the male seed. But God, speaking of the woman's seed, is indicating and hinting of a virgin birth. And later, God speaks of this more clearly in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, where he says, Behold, I shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, and he shall be great. And it speaks about his kingdom and his throne. And so God's promise back at the beginning of the sorrows and the calamity from sin is that the day will come when the woman's seed will bruise the serpent's head. And the head is always spiritually a symbol of authority and power. And so the seed of the woman to destroy Satan's power, the authority of Satan. So Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of Satan over our lives and the authority of Satan over our lives. That is good news. And the reference, you shall bruise his heel, is a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. So, why do we need a Savior? Well, we read a little bit that some of those verses in Romans gives us a clue. But we also go to Ephesians 2. The book of Ephesians in the New Testament tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It calls us sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It seems pretty clear we need a Savior. There was a pastor named D.M. Stearns who was preaching in Philadelphia one time, and at the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, I don't like the way you spoke about the cross. I think that instead of emphasizing the death of Jesus Christ, it would be far better to preach Jesus, the teacher and example. Stearns replied, if I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? I certainly would, said the stranger without hesitation. All right then, said the preacher, let's take the first step. He did no sin. Can you claim that for yourself? The man looked confused and somewhat surprised. Why no, he said. I acknowledge that I do sin, replied the pastor. Then your greatest need is to have a savior, not an example. So why do we need a savior? Well, because we are completely unable to save ourselves. It is only the promise of a savior who can destroy Satan's grip on us. And for this, we go to two passages, but one I want you to, to look at with me. So if you can turn to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then, uh, you don't have to turn there, but 1 John puts it even more succinctly. Chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the reason why the Son of God appeared. So how does this reference to a Savior way back in Genesis apply to us today, thousands of years later? It's a fair question. That brings up the importance of the genealogies in Scripture. 
and we're not going to go deep into that, but we will say that genealogies represent God's promise of a Savior through the seed of man. The genealogical line from Adam's son Seth ultimately leads to Christ and his first advent are coming to earth, so Christ's first coming. Christ's first coming was Jesus providing what God required, which was perfection. Remember, when he set it up, there was perfection. Man fell, he provided a savior, Jesus provided what God required. The first thing he accomplished was that our sins were forgiven. We know that, we read that. Colossians 2, 13 and 15 says, He has forgiven us all our trespasses, canceled the record of debt, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Incredible. Second thing is, we received the righteousness of God. So not only were our wrongdoings forgiven, we also received his righteousness. Romans 5, 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Hallelujah. And so now we have a new standing with God. His glorious resurrection, the defeat of Satan and death and sin means that our relationship with God has been restored. He tells us in Ephesians, he has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. These are promises that are so great and grand. It's the, it's the promises why we come and worship him. What sometimes is hard to fathom, though, is we understand as we sit here now that sin is still in the world. We know it. It's obvious. But one day we have the promise of the second advent the second coming of Christ. And Jesus will accomplish certain things in his second advent that we should understand. The first of those is that creation will be restored. Even the creation. Book of Romans chapter 8, verse 19, says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We don't think that all of creation will be restored, but it will be. And secondly, perfect obedience will be restored. Perfect obedience, just like he called us to initially. We will be conformed to the image of his son, it tells us in Romans 8.29. God also justified us, and he also glorified us. And being glorified is the completion of our salvation. Then there's a third thing. Not only will creation be restored, not only will perfect obedience be restored, but our relationship with God will be completely restored, and we will enjoy being in His presence forever. And this is the last time I'm going to ask you to turn. You're pretty close. You're in Hebrews. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
we will always be with the Lord. There can be no more encouraging words than that. So first, we have the promise of a coming Messiah. Lastly, we have the guarantee that it will be completed. Jesus provided what God required, which is perfection. Jesus required what God provided, perfection. And so the promise of Christmas, a time when we give gifts, and those gifts are usually what we want. The promise of Christmas is the gift that we need, the promise of a Savior. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for so many things. The promise of a Savior, Jesus' first advent, his second advent, we rest in these, and we thank you that you have provided everything that we need, and that which we cannot provide ourselves you willingly provided it and continue to provide it. Lord, we thank you. We just bow before you. We give you our lives. We give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Randy. This is something that we definitely need as we hold on to the promises. That's the hope that we have in Titus 2, 11 through 13. And, and the hope of salvation is something that's the greatest gift that we can give anyone. It's the hope that people need during this season. I pray that you have that hope. If not, I pray that you would just come to us and seek that hope. Just repent from dead works and turn and trust in the one who's made all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our opportunity to give. We thank you for the hope of salvation. And Father, even though we may not see all things together good, we still have a second hope, and that's of your return. But Lord, as we just now continue to look what your salvation does, now that we're looking at that promise of a Savior is now past for us, we look forward to just living that out. And Lord, one of the ways that we live it out is by worshiping, by giving generously and sacrificially and cheerfully to those things that promote your gospel. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to do that. And I pray that you bless all that give in the way that pleases you. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.